I have entitled the message, Clearly the Good Shepherd. That is certainly reflective of what is in the text. As we come to look at this, you know, we finished off last time talking about the Good Shepherd, and Jesus said in John 10, the thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He said, I have come that they may have life, they may have it more abundantly. As God comes to live within our lives, as we bow our knees before him in repentance in that initial hour of surrender and conversion, and the Lord comes to live within us, he begins to let us experience what the Bible calls eternal life. Really, from the very first moment, we find out that eternal life isn't just a length of time, but it's a quality of life that comes to us in the first moment of true conversion from the Holy Spirit of God. And that's the abundant life. It equates to the abundant life, the work of God within our souls, within our hearts, within our lives, within our friends' lives, within the work that we do together as Christians, equates to the abundant life. It is so rich. I mean, just take a man who goes to his job and he goes day in, day out. A woman who goes to her job day in, day out. There are very few people in life who love their job. It is a rare thing to be able to do what you love to do and get paid for it. In fact, the truth is, is that most positive thinking seminars have to do with that. And so many people really do live a mundane life. They go to work, they come home, they turn on the tube, they click it around until they fall asleep on the couch and then they wander off to bed. And that's kind of their life. The average individual's life is really a dull, empty, boring existence. But to come to Christ, you could be locked right into that syndrome and rut and immediately begin to have the beginning of the abundant life because it consists in so many other issues that are non-material at all, really not even related to the material. Such an abundant life, I believe, the scripture says, that even in a time of poverty, you are rich. And certainly much of the world goes to bed hungry at night. Those people, when they come to Christ, they still go to bed hungry, many of them. But though they may be poor, they may live in a hut. I have given Bible studies in the Philippines where the floor was made of dirt. And the people that gathered around sat on the floor. And when we were all done with the message, whether I thought it was good or bad, anointed or unanointed, they wept and thanked God and cried together in such deep appreciations and felt so rich in their spirits because of this abundant life, this eternal life. This life then enables you, even in poverty, to be rich, even in sickness, to be able to have a spiritual health that transcends any physical health. It's a kind of life when Jesus says it's abundant that... Even in a time when you are facing contempt from people all around you, you can be full of triumph if you're right with God. And live on and on in that way until you die full of glory. It truly is the abundant life. When you begin to realize that, you begin to really want to guard it. You want to guard it. You want to stay near the Good Shepherd so that you can keep that abundant life flowing. And when he says more abundantly... And when God is unlimited in His resources and never-ending in His desire to bless, you realize that He wants to take you into new areas all the time of blessedness. I came across the prayer of an old Puritan Christian and it spoke to me so deeply along these lines. I wanted to bring it to you and read it to you. This is how the prayer goes. May I never fail to come to the knowledge of the truth. May I never rest in a system of doctrine, however scriptural, that does not bring or further salvation or teach me to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts or help me to live soberly, righteously, and godly. Never rely on my own convictions and resolutions, but be strong in you, Lord, and in the power of your might. May I never cease to find Thy grace sufficient in all my duties and trials and conflicts. May I never forget to turn to you in all my spiritual distresses and outward troubles and in all the dissatisfactions experienced in creature comforts. May I never fail to retreat to him who is full of grace and full of truth, the friend that loves at all times, who is touched with feelings of my infirmities and who can do exceedingly 
abundantly for me. May I never confine my religion to extraordinary occasions, but to acknowledge you in all my ways. May I never limit my devotions to particular seasons in my life, but be in the fear of the Lord all day long. May I never be godly only on Sundays or in your house when I'm at church, but on every day when I travel abroad and when I'm at home. May I never make piety an outward garment, but a habit, and not only a habit, but a nature, and not only a nature, but a life. And then the prayer ends, Do good to me by all your dispensations, by all your means of grace, by worship, by prayers, by praises, and at last let me enter that world where there is no temple, but only your glory, and it is lit by the glory of the Lamb of God. What a wonderful prayer. Someone who understands clearly how good the Good Shepherd is and how abundant the abundant life is, and thus how priceless and how we must treasure it and guard it and continue to bring our lives to God. In John 10, 11, Jesus says, I am the Good Shepherd. He says, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling who is not the shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leave the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so, I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep, and other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd, speaking to the whole issue of Jew and Gentile, and that he came as the light of the world for any in the world that would receive him, and all of us afar off that have come to him now, and then in verse 19, Therefore there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. Notice a division again. And many of them said, He is a demon and he's mad. Why do you even listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Don't forget, we are still fresh in this passage. We're just fresh after the healing of the blind man. He's right in this group right here listening to these things. And they probably gestured to him. And then we read in verse 22, Now it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, which comes across to us today in our time as Hanukkah. And it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him. When John writes like this, the Jews... He's not talking about any Jew in general. He's talking about the scribes and the Pharisees that persecuted him. These are the Jews you generally find being brought up in his gospel. That's how he uses the term. And they surrounded him. And they said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, why don't you just tell us plainly? Jesus answered them, I told you. And you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep, as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. You'll notice that it says here in verse 22, Now it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. I think the reason that John puts that in here is because... It really is the last time that Jesus openly confronts the scribes and the Pharisees. This is his last attempt to reach them. What has happened is the summer of all of his outreach to them has come and gone, and, and now it's icing over, and they are being frozen into their lost condition. From here on out, Jesus rejects them. He no longer reaches out to them. It is a chilling moment in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so we read of this cold time. It's probably a rainy day. It was a, a wintry time, a cold time, but it was especially a cold time spiritually. And so he said, I told you and you don't believe. 
Then I love verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. That verse is loaded with application. Now we've seen Jesus as the Messiah in the first six verses. We saw him as the door last time. This time we see Jesus as the good shepherd, which he is, of course, really throughout. But he takes that phrase to himself. And in doing so, what he is saying is he is speaking of his dedication to the sheep. He is, in a sense, contrasting himself with the Pharisees, who are really purely in it for their own gain. Money, power, prestige, fame. And the big problem with them is they are so insanely jealous that his following is so much greater than theirs. They are so jealous that that is a big part of their driving motivation to kill him. Jealousy has so often been behind every murder, whether it's the murder of a person physically, as in the case of Cain and Abel, or whether it is the murder of someone's reputation, whatever the case may be. Shakespeare called it the green sickness. And these guys are green with it. They are full of the sickness of jealousy that kills. And so he speaks of his dedication to the sheep in contrast to them and the long history of people like them with the Jews that had been unfaithful to God's people and robbed them of a relationship with him. He's playing off a historical analogy here of the hireling and the good shepherd in these first few verses that we're looking at. In verse 12, he says, A hireling is he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling. And he does not care about the sheep. He said, I am the good shepherd. I give my life for the sheep as a good shepherd does. Now, why does he bring that up? To us, you know, we think of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We just kind of immediately think of biblical terms of Jesus. But you must understand, this is his last attempt to reach out to the Pharisees. And it is a major attempt to show his disciples the difference between the real thing and the fake thing. So what he does is he brings up an analogy that is intense to these people. What he is saying to them immediately raises an intense feeling in their hearts. Because when he talks about a hireling, the hireling is something that was well known to them. The hireling was a person who came along and here's the shepherd, he has the sheep, he needs some help, and here's a guy just passing through maybe. He just wants uh, some money for a little while and so he gets a job just helping out with the shepherd. But the mark of the hireling was that when trouble came, he split. He was out of there. Whereas in their society, to be a shepherd, and whether it be during the time of David, whether it be during the time of Moses, whether it be reading through the writing of Amos, to be a shepherd, God had things in his word about it. The responsibility of having the flock was so tremendous that Jesus says that the good shepherd will give his life for the sheep. And what he said, he meant. They all knew that to be true. In fact, in the Bible, Amos speaks about the shepherd rescuing two legs or the piece of an ear to bring back out of the lion's mouth as proof that he had done everything he could to save the life of that sheep and yet was unable. So he'd bring back proof that the thing had been devoured. In the book of Exodus 22.13, it says, If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. Anything left over, bring as evidence that you were a responsible shepherd, that you did everything you could to protect them. David in 1 Samuel 17, 34 through 36 tells how he fought a lion and a bear to protect the sheep. So here's David. He sees a lion coming to attack the sheep. He risks his very life to save those sheep, knowing others had died in the process of the very thing. He fights a bear. Whereas a hireling sees all this trouble. It's, I'm out of here. I don't care about these sheep. I didn't sign up for this. Just wanted a few bucks along the way to meet my own agenda. Isaiah speaks of the crowd of shepherds being called together to deal with a lion coming to the flock in Isaiah 31.4. So here's the point. These people in this crowd understand that to a, a real shepherd, he would do everything within his power risk his life if necessary 
to defend his flock, lay it down if he had to, and die in the process if necessary. It is raising immediately in the hearts of these people, whether it be the Pharisees who are unbelievers or his followers. He's raising this intense issue and they're kind of leaning forward. Where is he going with this? Because we all know this is an intense issue. Dr. W.M. Thompson wrote in the land in the book years ago of his visit to this area and he said, I have listened with intense interest to their graphic descriptions of downright and desperate fights with these savage beasts. And when the thief and the robber come, and they do come, the faithful shepherd has often to put his life in his hand to defend the flock. Then he said, I have known more than one case where he literally had to lay his life down in the fight. He said there was one poor fellow last spring between Tiberias, which is the Sea of Galilee area, and Mount Tabor, who instead of fleeing, actually fought with three Bedouin robbers until they hacked him to pieces with their knives and he died among the sheep that he was defending. So the true shepherd never hesitated to risk or even lay down his life and die in protecting the flock. They all know this in this crowd. What Jesus is saying in terms of salvation is that that is what I am as the Savior. I will do everything necessary to save you. Then I will do everything necessary to protect you. And that's why in verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known by my own. And as the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Other sheep I have that are not of this fold, them also I must bring. They will hear my voice. There will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore, my Father loves me because I'm going to lay down my life and then I'm going to take my life again. See now, the Gospel of John has been used by God to lead so many people to Christ alone, just reading it. Some of the most devout atheists have come to Christ born again just sitting in a room alone reading the Gospel of John. If you are reading along and you come to something like this, therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again, Jesus presents such a problem to people that really truly honestly investigate Him because you begin to read these things where He prophesies of His own death and He prophesies of His own resurrection. And he says, this isn't going to be something where I'm going to be a victim, where I'm going to lose control, a good cause gone bad, and I get killed. He says in verse 18, nobody takes my life from me. Yes, I will die, but nobody's taking my life from me. I'm going to lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. You begin to study honestly those kinds of claims. Then you begin to follow it historically to check it out. And what happens is everything validates the claims. Jesus dies, he rises again. And you have to bear in mind, what is the context in which he is preaching this? Can you see how he set them up for this kind of preaching? Here is a man born blind. Since the history of the world, there has never been a man born blind who is completely healed and can see. So he takes him and he does something that's never been done ever. It's a creative act. He's got to create new eyes in this man. He does that. The whole town knows about it. All of Jerusalem knows about it. The scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, interrogate the guy. Everybody knows about it. With that kind of display of creative power, power that only God could have, out of the context on the heels of that very event, he says these words. And he uses an analogy that breeds deep, intense emotion in the hearts of the people. And it is all to say this, probably gesturing to the blind man, I will do whatever is necessary for those that are my own, to save them and then to protect them afterwards. And brethren, that is your good shepherd. He has done everything necessary for you to save you, and he will do everything necessary now, now in your life now to protect you. You must rest in that. You must believe that. Especially in light of where we're going to go in a minute, something else I'm going to talk about. So we see his dedication to the sheep. It is marvelous. And then you see this division caused by his 
message. We could have talked a lot about people in the church that are hirelings. There's a lot of people in the ministry. There are a lot of people on staff as pastors. There are pastors in the pulpit. There are senior pastors. There are hirelings. They don't have any heart for the flock. They're just in it for the money. They have, they're in it for their own agenda. How do you know if they're hirelings? Because when trouble happens, they split. That's it. There is not the call of God and all of that there. The division caused by his message. This, to me, has a real practical application for all of us that know and love the Lord. In verse 19, it says, Therefore there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. Many of them said he's got a demon and he's crazy. I love this. Why do you listen to him? Oh, well, to the one who does. (laughs) How many million reasons do you want? Why do you listen to him? Why do you go to Bible study? Well, how many million reasons do you want? I remember when I was working at Burger King wearing my paper hat in East Lansing, Michigan, across the street from Michigan State. I was going to say the Lakers, but... Anyway, I remember you had all the students come across the street. We were directly across the street in the Burger King, and they'd file through. And one of my jobs at one point in time was to shove the food across the counter to them. You know, you get in the little line and take the orders. At one point, my job was to read off the order and, and give them their bags. The same people came in every day, every day, every day. So I got to know some of them. I, I got to know a couple of individuals. And I remember one day I invited them to a Bible study, and they just... They were so friendly, we would laugh and joke every day, every day, every day, that one day when I brought that up, they laughed in my face. You know how sometimes you laugh and do a spit? You just laugh so hard, you just, you know, sorry, did I spray? You just kind of lose it so quick, you do a little spit. Well, that's the kind of laugh they did. They just mocked me. They said, a Bible study? Oh, and I remember standing there with my paper hat on, and it was a moment I didn't feel so sharp. Perhaps if I was sitting in, you know, the backseat of a limo and I had my name on the license plate, I felt different. At any rate, they mocked me. It was this idea, why do you listen to him? Why do you study the Bible, they said to me. But then the Spirit of God quickened me and filled me with joy. I said, oh, I can give you a million reasons why. And you only laugh because you don't know. You don't know and you don't know him. They said, why do you listen to him? Verse 21, others said, These are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So there's this division among them. Jesus speaks and they just step across the line in two different directions. See, we too have to expect this kind of reaction. And I say that because it says here in verse 19, there was a division again among the Jews because of these sayings. In other words, it was a common thing. Look at the life of Paul the Apostle. Everywhere he goes... He either causes a riot or a revival. It's kind of like, man, I just want to go on one of his trips with him. There's going to be action either way. The point being this, riot or revival, it's a division, you see. And Jesus in uh, Luke 12, 51 said an interesting thing. He said, do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? He said, I tell you not at all, but rather division. It's the exact word he said. Turn your Bible to Matthew 10 to verse 34. Matthew 10. Jesus is discipling his followers. You look at this. You simply follow Jesus around, and it's a nonstop death threat. You see it on his life. You see it on Paul's life. You see it on the prophets' lives in the Old Testament. You begin to get the idea, don't you, that Making a difference in the kingdom of God requires one to be a pretty tough individual. I mean, you begin to get that idea. So Jesus is wanting to disciple his followers into this way of thinking. So that when he is gone, they are tough and they're willing to die for the truth. And you track the apostles and they all died, most of them, a martyr's death. But in Matthew 10.34... He said, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. Now, initially, that's shocking, isn't it? Because you think of the shepherds, the angels, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. But notice he says, I did not come to bring peace on earth. Bear this in mind. He, throughout his entire ministry, was constantly battling 
an unwavering mindset in the people that the Messiah, when he came, would be a militant deliverer, that he would throw off the Roman yoke. So here, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. It's a statement saying, get your thoughts off this militant Messiah thing. It's not happening. But you see, they did not like that. They did not like that kind of talk. Even to the point that when he said, walking down the road, Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, and not only that, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem and they're going to kill me. Peter says, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. I get the revelation around here. We'll control these conversations. Because remember, Jesus said, oh, the Father has showed you that. Flesh and blood hasn't revealed that I'm the Christ. Surely you're in the flow of the Father's revelation. Eh? Well, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem and die. Just hang on. I'm in charge of revelation. You teach, but I get revelation. And nobody's going to Jerusalem going to die around here. He proves that when they're in the garden. He whips his sword out and whacks the guy's ear off, remember? He was aiming for his head, not his ear. He wasn't thinking, I'll just take a slice of his ear and that'll prove the point. No, he was whacking for the guy's head. But the point being that there was this mindset so deeply entrenched in the people of a militant Messiah and that was not what he was all about. So he says, do not think. Get it out of your mindset. Change it. Don't think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. Get your eyes off the Romans. Get your eyes under the reality of what I'm here for. It has to do with darkness and light, with sin and the devil, with God and holiness, with lostness and salvation and repentance. Please understand that you want to talk about a real enemy, wait until you begin to take a stand for me and you share the truth, my gospel, with those in your household, with those in your family. You're going to find out what a painful enemy can be when your own family rejects you. In the writing of Luke, Luke always gives different details. You know, there'll be two or three in the household that will go along, or one or two that will reject. Households will be split. In the Jewish culture, you were ousted. They would even at certain points have a funeral service for you. And you were dead to the family. You get a little tiny bit of that in the old movie, Fiddler on the Roof. But that's the point. Go against it and it was a major thing. And so he says, the enemies will be those of your own household. And he is not saying that I don't want families to be close. He is not even implying in the slightest way that I don't want you loving your parents. He's not implying any of that. He's simply saying that the price you're going to pay for following me is going to be very heavy. And the truth divides from error, light from darkness, those who want to follow God from those who do not. In verse 37, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. He who loses his life for my sake will find it. And then this is so great. But know this. He who receives you receives me. You will become the channel of eternal salvation for any that will listen, that will hear, and that will respond. And the blessedness of that honor of being God's channel to save men from eternal lostness and send them to eternal bliss in heaven will far outweigh any persecution, any ensuing enemies, any division that you have to face, and you see him discipling them into this ruggedness with love at the center of it all to expand the kingdom. We must expect this as he was teaching them to expect it so we can handle it in love and not respond when there's trouble by getting weird, bitter, hateful, arguing, shouting, yelling, but just being vessels of his love. So you see the dedication caused by his love for his sheep, and you see his, this division that is here caused by his message. Then this thing, this is incredible, this doubt in spite of his clarity. I look at this as the unconverted blaming God for their own sin of rejecting Christ, and you see it all the time. People are so full of excuses 
when they come to understand what Christ wants, what Christ demands. And one of the biggest ones is that God isn't clear enough. If God was just clearer in all of this, it seems to me, and then they begin to spout their opinions and all of their confusion. But look at this in verse 22. It says, Now it was the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. So now time has gone by. He's been ministering elsewhere probably. He's back here now in Jerusalem, and it is winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. And the Jews surrounded him, and they said, This is a staggering attack. How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Do you see what they're doing? They're saying, you know, we really want to know. We really do want to know. But you know why we don't know? Because you're not clear. Look, if you're such a good shepherd, if you care so much about the sheep, why don't you just get clear, huh? Just talk in terms that we can understand so that we can believe. We are in doubt because of you. It's your fault that we are in doubt. The audacity of it all. If you are the Christ, why don't you just tell us plainly? You see, Jesus answered them. He said, I already did. He's basically through with them at this point. I already did. He says, I told you and you don't believe. He said, the works I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Now, just think of John, where we've been in John. I know it's been a long journey, disconnected at times. But where we have been is that in the beginning, the first miracle he did was he turned the water into wine at Cana. And with that miracle, just a little bit of preaching, the guys that just had just begun to follow him went to the wedding. They went. They saw what he did. They heard a little preaching. It was enough. It was clear enough. And they believed and they've been following him ever since. Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, and so on. He goes on from there and he does other great works. He goes to the pool of Bethesda and he heals a man who's been laying there on this rack for years, paralyzed, and he heals him in front of everybody. An incredible miracle. What a statement of who he is. And along the way, he's healing people, forgiving sin, and so on. He goes along the Sea of Galilee and he feeds the 5,000 men, plus women, plus children, probably a crowd of 30 to 50,000 people. And he does it all with a boy's lunch. And then he takes it all, as he did with each one of his miracles, as he does here with the blind man. He takes it and he turns it into a powerful evangelistic sermon. Here are all these hungry people, and he waits till they're really hungry. Then he takes a boy's lunch, and he blesses it, and he breaks the bread, and then the disciples hand it out to the multitudes, and everybody is stuffed until they can't eat anymore. And now that they're stuffed and there's still food left over, he says, now let me tell you the real intention of this whole gigantic miracle. You've never seen this in your whole life. I never tasted such good bread. Man, that bread must have been good. I hate fish, so we won't go to the fish side. But then, what's his sermon after that? I am the bread of life. And on he goes into it. The words and the works. How much clearer does it have to be? And then you just track it on up to the blind man and right here. So when they come and they say, how long are you going to keep us in doubt? It is ludicrous. Tell us plainly. How plain does it have to be? If you're one of these people that says, well, you know, I hear Christians witness to me. I hear sermons, you know, but it's just still not clear. And I have so many doubts and questions. How plain does it have to be for you? What kind of unique category are you in in life? You're just a sinner like the rest of us. How plain does it have to be? He has done enough. It's across the pages of the Bible. He's done it in your friends' lives. He has plowed so deeply into your own soul. He has shed the searchlight of his Holy Spirit to expose your deepest sins that no one knows about except you. How plain does it have to be before you'll believe and turn to follow him? And take him as your Lord and especially your rescuing Savior. How plain does it need to get? How deep does he have to plow to show you and make you face your own fallen, hopeless, sinful condition? Before you will just simply respond back. How plain does it have to get? Oh, I don't know. Maybe there's another door somewhere. You know, there's Hindus and stuff. Anytime you get and stuff in there, you know you're tracking deep. There's Hindus and stuff. And there's many doors. 
I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, you may knock at a thousand doors trying to find God or salvation. He said, you may cry, you may pray, you may groan, you may agonize, you may sweat, even to drops of blood. But he said, you're going to find out there's only one door to heaven, and that door is the door of faith in Jesus Christ. And if you will not enter by that door, God himself is not going to open another door. And I say that to you right now. How plain does he have to make it? How deep does he have to plow to show you your own wretchedness to the point that you can barely look in the mirror and yet you reject him and try to put the blame back on him? Well, I doubt well, it's his fault. You see, these unconverted people are blaming him for their own sin of rejecting him. And he is through with them because he has been more than clear with them. Not only that, you better be careful about asking God to get more clear because he knows everything about you. How clear do you want him to get? I mean, how low do you have to go before you give up, before you give in? Very, very dangerous thing to just flippantly walk up and say, get really clear with us now. Oh, okay. He could have, you know. He could have said, okay, you just stand aside, you there, Mr. Levi guy. You just stand there. All right, everybody, he wants me to be clear. I'll be clear. And he could have gone right down the line of this guy's life, his deepest sins, his deepest wicked thoughts. He could have shredded him in front of everybody. But he didn't. Because that wasn't what he was all about. To see how flippant. Get clear with this, Lord. Be very careful with that. Accusing God. Projecting your guilt on him. Your blame on him. You know, so there's something else I see here. This is sort of a hitchhike thought off the context. It applies to us as Christians, too, because as converted, for the sin of our rebellion and our selfish anger... Because it's something in the human heart of human sin to project blame for the sin. I mean, God knows how much money's been made in the last few decades off that thought alone. It's not your fault. I've had those guys stare at me with the intimidating stare. Talk about insecurity. Tell me about feelings. And when you're all done, I'll tell you it's not your fault and charge you 150 bucks for the 20 minutes and you won't be any different when you walk out. Thanks a lot very much. I don't need your kind of help. I've been to those. I've been analyzed. I know my complexes. But now I know my savior, my rescuer from all of that. You see, what happens is there is something within all of us that, that wants, sin wants to project blame. That's just the way sin is. How long do you leave us in doubt and in verse 25, I told you, you don't believe the works that I do in my Father's name. They bear witness of me. This whole idea, people getting mad at God. Well, Lord, you haven't been clear enough. So much that goes on. Let me just be very pointed. Do you blame God right now for your doubts today? Are you in that place? Are you mad at God right now? If the truth were known, do you have a very long list of complaints? Have you quit going to church regularly because you're so mad and doubtful? Is this one of your bi-monthly visits? Mad at God, doubtful, so you've quit going to church regularly? I read an interesting thing. This was written in 1509. Most people have some sort of religion. At least they know what church they are staying away from. Are you one of those? Oh yeah, I was going there. But I'm not going there now because I'm not going anywhere. Why? Because I'm mad. Why? Because I'm full of doubts. Why? Because God's not clear enough on a lot of issues. How clear does he need to be? On what issue? I don't think he loves me. How clear does he need to be? He died on the cross for you. How clear does he need to be about loving you? I mean, what else do you want him to do? There's nothing beyond that dying in your place. How clear does he need to be? Oh, I don't know. He's just not clear on a lot of things. I just don't know. I, I just, I'm mad at him. He, he, you know, he doesn't do anything in my life. Oh, well, he just forgave you of all your sins and you get to escape eternal hell where there is no deliverance once you enter. There's, no, there's a door in, but no door out. He hasn't done anything. Oh, yeah. I just don't feel like he's done anything. And he has heaven. He's got a mansion for you waiting. He's going to give you a mansion. You may think, you know, you're getting pretty intense about this. I'll tell you why. Because I have been there so many times myself. 
with a long list of complaints, with a whole lot of doubts. Lord, you're just not clear enough. Lord, you're just not loving enough. Lord, why don't you just prove it? How clear do I need to be? Is what it always comes down to. You should have died twice, at least, in two car wrecks. You're alive. You should be dead from drug overdoses. You're alive. You've been hit over the head with pipes, you know, when you were attacking people under the influence of too many drugs. You've got scars all over your body to prove it. You're alive. What do you want me to do? How much do I need to show you? And I'll tell you what happens to me every time. See, I can't skip church. I have to preach. I'm... <laughs> you ditch out for a month or two because you're mad at God. I keep showing up. And what happens is, now you're going to think every time I'm gone, I'm mad. Don't, don't you dare think that. That'll be a sin. The sin of doubt, by the way. And you, you know. But seriously, I have gone through. I'm human. I'm like you. And what happens to me is that in the end, I end up in the same exact place and in the same exact position. On my knees, weeping, crying my eyes out before my Savior who died for me, who bore my wretchedness, my sin, who cried out in agony, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every day, every prayer of his life until that point was my father. But through the drastic, radical wrath and punishment he bore because of me, there was such a sense of separation. It was a desperation from the depth of his soul, my God, reaching from the deepest part within him, the human side at least. And I end up on my face weeping and in tears because how clear really does he have to make it for me? He's done so many wondrous works. He's done so many wonderful things. He's worked in the lives not only of just me, but of so many people around me. How long do you keep us in doubt? Please don't live your life like that with God. Someone has well said, Max Lucado, he said, Clouds of doubt are created when the warm, moist air of our expectation meets the cold air of God's Silence. The problem is not as much in God's silence, he said, as in your ability to hear him. And God himself says, My hand isn't short that it cannot save, nor am I unable to speak to you that you could hear, but it is your what that has separated you, your sin. We need to be very careful about coming to God and saying it's your fault. It is the tendency of sin to project blame elsewhere. I find it very intriguing in the Bible that Adam and Eve, when they sinned, there's just a whole world of instruction here. Eve was deceived. She was honestly deceived. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 2.14, Adam was not deceived. The woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. In, in Genesis 3.13, the Lord God said to the woman, this is after they had sinned, he said, what is this you have done? And the woman came right out. She didn't try to hide it or anything. She said, uh, you know what happened, Lord, is, is I got deceived. The serpent deceived me. And I did this. She just came clean right away. God comes to Adam. And the man says, well, you see, well, uh, th there's this woman. Think of it. The woman, she's deceived legitimately. She sins. God, I, was, I got deceived. Adam was not deceived. He says, the woman, you made this woman. You, you brought her to me. She lured me into this. That's the secondary cause. The first is you. Why have you sinned? You. Where does the fault and the guilt and the blame lie? You. It is the tendency of sin from the very beginning in the human heart to project the blame and the guilt. What's the problem here? You. And we fall into it, don't we? We have our expectations. God has his will. It is good and it is perfect. Our expectations are always self-centered, self-serving. At least to some degree, we don't get them. We get mad at God. And when there's a problem, we start pointing the finger at him. It's you. And how long will you leave us in doubt? When are you going to get clear on these issues? May God help us. Someone has said, beware of doubt, because faith is the subtle chain that binds us to the infinite. So there is this dedication, division, doubt. Then there is this devotion to his voice. I love this. Verse 27, in contrast to these 
men in front of these disciples, these religious leaders, we end with this. He says, My sheep, they hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. You want to know a true test of conversion? That's it. My sheep hear my voice. Do you hear God's voice? God promises to speak to you if you know him. In Isaiah 30, 21, it says, God says, Your ears hear a word behind you saying, This is the way, walk in it. And also work in you, he says in Isaiah 30, 22, that you'll look at your idols and you will throw them away as an unclean thing and you will say to them, Get away, get out of my life. Do you know that work in your life? Do you know the voice of God? He doesn't speak right into your ear. He speaks into your heart. Do you know that? It's a, it's a my sheep hear my voice. Do you hear his voice? If not, then you're not his sheep. There's, there are times of silence. I don't want to leave anyone unnecessarily condemned and, you know, in a big trial. Well, there are times of silence, testing of our faith. But overall, have you found him in your life speaking to your heart, my sheep and my voice, and they follow me? This, to me, is the acid test. Talk is cheap. Tell me you're Christ's follower, James says, and then show me how you followed. Just show me some footprints. John said if we love him, we have to walk as he walked. Just show me some footprints. Show me some works. Do you have a testimony? Do you claim to know him? If so, do you have a testimony? My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. If you're born again, you have a testimony. You say, well, I don't know. I was never that sinful. I got saved so early. Yeah, that's not the point. That's not the testimony. The testimony is, has God worked in your life? Can you show where he's worked in your life? That's all. It's a true test of conversion. But you know what's even better is that this becomes my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. It becomes a taste of God's unique will and works for you. Because you hear his voice, you sense his guidance, and he speaks so deeply within that you are convinced in the deepest part of your soul that God is guiding. And then you step out and you follow him. My sheep hear my voice. And one thing about my sheep, they follow me. Because his voice is energizing in and of itself. His calling is his enabling. And so you follow wherever he leads. And you know something? I believe what is really at the bottom of so much of what God is doing in your life, what he's taking you through is that he's trying to bring you to the point where you will say your will be done, no matter what it is. Lord, I will follow you wherever you tell me to go. I will do whatever you ask me to do. I will do it. And when Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.20, he says, But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also wood and clay, some for honor, some for dishonor. 2 Timothy 2.21, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified or set apart, useful for the master, prepared, that's what he's doing in your heart right now, for, notice, every good work. In other words, this attitude that says, Lord, I'll do it. You tell me and I'll do it. If it's really you, I'll do it. You speak deeply to my heart and I'll do it. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. And that's where the abundant life begins to happen. And as we end, let me just tell you something. He leads us all in a different way with a unique plan. And that is why if you look, for example, at, at Hebrews 11, you find that Abel heard God and he offered a more excellent sacrifice. You find Enoch, he heard God and he walked with him and he pleased God. God did a special thing with him. Enoch walked with God and he was not because God just took him. First rapture. You look at Noah, he heard God, he prepared an ark. And we know that whole story. 120 years of carpentry on a boat in the middle of a place where it had never rained because it had never rained on the whole earth. And all that God did. Abraham heard God and he obeyed and went out to a place where he didn't even know where he was going. He called the Mayflower moving truck. They pulled up, loaded his stuff up. The driver said, all right, where do we go? And he said, I don't know. We go, though. And we'll, go, we'll hear instructions from God as we go. Right, fella. Well, they did. You see, it's different for everybody. Rahab heard the voice of God and received the spies and received salvation. You go all the way through Hebrews 11, and what you see is this. Everything we've talked about, you see people that 
that see it, see God as being clear enough. People that see the sufficiency of God's Spirit as being sufficient enough. People that believe God loves them enough, they will die for Him. And so they subdue kingdoms. And the Bible says they wrought righteousness. They obtained promises. They stopped the mouths of lions. They quenched the violence of fire. They escaped the edge of the sword. And I love this part. Out of weakness they were made strong. Then they became valiant. And they turned to flight the armies of the enemies and women received their dead raised to life again and others were tortured not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection and in every one of these cases every life heard God's voice in a little different way and went out and did something different but they all did what God was leading them to do because his sheep hear his voice and they follow him do it and it will lead you to the abundant life And if you've been mad at God, stop it. Confess it. If you confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive you. If you hold it in, He cannot, He will not. I leave you with these words. Doubt sees the obstacles. Faith sees the way. Doubt sees the darkest night. Faith sees the day. Doubt dreads to take a step. Faith soars on high. Doubt questions. Who believes? And faith answers, I. Every step toward Christ kills a doubt. Every thought, word, deed for him carries you away from discouragement. So said Theodore Kuehler in the late 1800s. There's no reason to doubt. He's made it so clear. There is every reason to believe, to listen, and to follow right on into your own unique, abundant life. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you so much. You are so very good to us. Oh, God, work your wonderful work in every heart here today. Your wonderful work of your perfect will. Holy Spirit, fill us afresh, anew, every nook and cranny of our heart and life. Jesus, draw us that we might run after you. Quicken us that we might rise out of weakness into strength. And we will give you all the glory for we ask these things in your wonderful, blessed name as our good shepherd. Amen.